0: All right, if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, that's where we're going to be this morning, and love for you to follow along, with soul as well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. let be to God. You may remember 30 years ago or so, a little over 30 years ago, uh, a boxer by the name of Iron Mike Tyson. And possibly, I mean, I'm I'm not a huge boxing fan, so I couldn't have the argument with you, but possibly the greatest heavyweight boxer ever. And he became the youngest man to win the heavyweight championship when he was age, he was 20 years old when he first won the heavyweight championship. And over the course of five years, he would record 37 straight wins, 33 of those by knockout, and 17 of those knockouts happened in the first round of his fights. But then on February 11th, and this is the part I remember, On February 11, 1990, in Tokyo, the sports world was just shocked when Tyson was knocked out in the 10th round in his bout with a a guy by the name of James Buster Douglas. And you might have remembered that the first time. It was like, wow, that guy can get knocked down? And this event still is more than 30 years later is regarded as one of the biggest upsets in sports history. It could be comparable in in one sense to the, the American men's hockey team winning the gold medal in 1980, (laughs) something like that. Mike Tyson had stood on a pedestal of dominance in in boxing for five years, during which he was the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. But what tends to happen when somebody becomes comfortable in their position of dominance is that they become arrogant. And they begin to see themselves kind of as invulnerable and not able to be beaten. They begin to think that no matter what I do, I'm going to get in this ring and I'm going to win. You can't lose. And so you assume invulnerability and because you think I'm the one that's in control. I'm the one that makes the rules. I'm the one that gets to call the shots. And, and then what ends up happening is their arrogance becomes their downfall. And Mike Tyson ended up on the mat and everybody was shocked. And in one sense, this is the very same place as we read this story in the gospels that you're like what does jesus have to do with mike tyson this is the very same place the pharisees stood when they came up against jesus they stood in a place of dominance in a place of authority in a place where they got to make the rules and they got to dictate how things went and then all of a sudden we have jesus coming on the scene and we have a boxing match of sorts we have a confrontation A head to head confrontation between Jesus and these Pharisees. Specifically, the thing they're fighting about is the laws of the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was the seventh day, and it was the day of rest, the day when everyone was supposed to rest because God rested, and He gave the Sabbath as a gift to His people. Now, that is is kind of a little bit out of our experience because we're not Jews. We don't celebrate the Sabbath or recognize the Sabbath, especially on a Saturday. And, and it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty rare, but in some states, and you may have remembered this if when you were young. Does there, anybody remember blue laws? Okay, one. <laughs> blue laws were laws uh, that were on the books, and there are many cities and counties and even states where blue laws are still in effect, and these blue laws dictate what you can and can't do on Sunday. right? So many blue laws uh, limit the sale of alcohol, on Sundays, or uh, the ability to have your business open on a Sunday, shopping, uh, going out for food, going to movies, any kind of entertainment, those kind of things. So uh, these were obviously more um, common 100 years ago than they are today. But if you really the last vestige, we have this in our society is when you get a hankering for a chicken sandwich, and it's Sunday afternoon, and Chick-fil-A is closed, or you want to go decorate your house, you go to Hobby Lobby, and the doors are locked. Right? So these are a little bit of vestiges of this kind of thing, these, these blue laws. And, and, and that's probably the, the closest illustration of what these Sabbath laws were that Jesus was coming into confrontation with the Pharisees over. Now, in this confrontation, as they're, as they're discussing these laws, as, as the Pharisees are coming up and trying to critique Jesus, and he's pushing back on them, Jesus claims, we saw this last week, Jesus claims in this conversation that he is actually greater than the temple, and that he's greater than the Sabbath as well. So he's, he's telling the Jews that the, the, the place on the earth, in Jerusalem, at the temple, the the geographical center of God's presence with his people, I'm I'm greater than that. And the temporal center of God's presence with his people, where every week his people would set that aside to rest and be with God, I'm Lord of that, he says. So so he's claiming, in a sense, to have God's own authority. He's, He's not just coming on the scene and saying, Hey, I want to suggest some new rules, guys. What do you think about these? He's coming on the scene and telling the Pharisees, I am the one who makes the rules in the first place. So we can picture, if you will, Jesus and the Pharisees, like two boxers. And after a round, boxers go to their corners, right? And they take a breather, they uh, get some water, they get stitched up a little bit in their round. And in one corner, here we have the Pharisees. And at the end of this, this confrontation in verse 14 we see the Pharisees withdraw from Jesus and it says they withdrew they met together and it says they conspired against Jesus how to destroy him So don't miss the don't miss the irony here the the Pharisees were the guardians of the Sabbath They're the ones who set the 39 rules of things you couldn't do and could do on the Sabbath. They are the ones who lived by every single one of those rules. And while they're observing all those rules, dotting every I and crossing every T, they're going off to plan a murder. Does this seem a little ironic to you? Jesus has already identified the Pharisees as ravenous wolves, as purveyors of injustice, who are supposed to care for God's people, yet they've become the harassers of the people instead through their overbearing rules and expectations, by which Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 23, you tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and you lay them on people's shoulders, and you won't even move a finger to help them. They've neglected the weightier matters of the law, Jesus says, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So that's who we have in one corner. And then withdrawing to the other corner is Jesus, the good shepherd, who doesn't do a good job of keeping man-made rules on the Sabbath. Instead, he's busy doing good on the Sabbath. He's already shown mercy to a, to a man with a disability on the Sabbath, and it says he continues to do good in verse 15. But Jesus, aware of this, he withdrew from there, and great crowds followed them. And what it, followed him. And what did he do? He healed them all. I mean, just this massive overflow of mercy and kindness and care to these people. He's been been with the crowds. He's seen the crowds. He's had compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he comes among them to bring his teaching, to, to offer a lighter load and an easier yoke. He shows mercy to the people, takes on their sufferings, and brings justice in their oppression. So the the Pharisees withdraw to their corner, getting ready to destroy, and Jesus withdraws in order to show mercy. And I love that Jesus, in this text, he knows exactly what the Pharisees are doing. The, The first few words of verse 15 literally read, but Jesus... Knowing withdrew. That's all there is there. Just one Greek word. He just, he knew. He knew what's going on. He's wise and he knows the Pharisees' hearts. He, he's observed their hardness. He's observed their stubbornness. He's observed their, their opposition. He's, he's looked at all this fruit and he knows that, it, that you can know a tree by its fruit. He knows what's in them. He knows what they're going off to do, their readiness to oppress and harass. And he knows what they're up to in doing so, where that eventually will lead for him. And then I love the fact, actually, that he withdraws. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Now, that could seem like kind of a coward move. Like, dude, if you're going to fight the Pharisees, fight them. Don't, Don't don't run off at the first sign of danger it could seem like jesus is being a coward like he's tucking his tail and running or he's he's trying to or he's going to lick his wounds because the fight was too brutal but that's not what's going on here what jesus is actually doing is that he's he's revealing two things and i think the first thing is that he's showing that the reason he came wasn't mainly to pick fights and win arguments Jesus didn't come just to combat the Pharisees. Yes, yeah, we've read already that Jesus came to bring a sword. He says, I, I've come and I, I bring division. His life, his ministry, his death, his, his resurrection, all of these things will bring division. But they'll bring division because of the hardness of human hearts, not because he wants to just come and fight. This wasn't the main purpose of his ministry. That this wasn't the main purpose of his work. And the quotation from Isaiah actually points this out. You look at verse 19. It says that he will not quarrel nor call out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. The reason that Jesus came was to show God's mercy. And his withdrawal from this situation shows that he's not going to waste time or pick fights with those who refuse to listen. He's going to be about the things he came to be about. And in in chapter 9, he already told the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I, the great physician, came to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Came to show mercy to sinners. And in chapter 20, this great statement of, of Jesus, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to show mercy, and in showing mercy, he may stand up for the little guy. He'll get in fights to protect and advocate. That's not the reason he came. The second thing I think it shows here is that there's a, there is an end to Jesus' patience with hard, unrepentant hearts, which is a really hard thing. It's a really hard thing as a preacher to say. I want to, I want to preach grace. And yet Jesus says, yeah, I'm, I'm done. And he removes himself. And his withdrawal from the Pharisees, I think Jesus is dramatically acting out what God is already doing. In the end of chapter 11, Andrew preached on this. That Jesus has hidden himself, in verse 25, from those who are wise and understanding, who think they know everything and have it figured out. Jesus, God is hiding himself from them, and in withdrawing from the Pharisees, Jesus is showing that, that very thing. I'm going to hide myself from you because you're not even opening, open to listening or seeing who I am. I'm going to tell these people I'm healing not to go tell you who I am because you won't get it anyway. And at the same time, Jesus Once again, he removes himself from the wise and understanding, and he turns his energies to the people, revealing himself to little children. This movement away from the Pharisees and towards the people is is at the same time an act of judgment on these oppressors and an act of mercy towards those they are, are oppressing. See, God's judgment isn't always fire and brimstone. More often in the Bible, God actually judges his people by handing them over to their sins. We see that in Romans chapter 1. We see that all the way throughout the Old Testament. He leaves them alone with their idolatrous and hard hearts by letting them have what they want. But just like eating too much ice cream will eventually kill you, being handed over to your sins will end up destroying you. It's, it's, and it's not, when God leaves you alone in your sin, that's not a way of God saying, hey, I'm okay with that. So you may be pursuing sin in your life. You may per, be pursuing some kind of lustful fantasies or, or pornography or theft or stealing or just being an angry person or being a gossip. Any of those things that you're pursuing, wow, God continues to allow me to do this. He's blessing my life. He doesn't seem to be judging me, so he might be okay with it. But God leaving you alone in your sin is not a stamp of approval on your sin. But God is saying that if you want something else more than you want him, then that's exactly what he will give you. And in the end, all that that will bring you is death. Jesus is showing that there's an end to his patience with a hard and unrepentant heart. So Matthew then, moving into verse 17 and 18, Matthew gives a brief picture then of of Jesus' withdrawal, and then he explains what Jesus is doing here with this lengthy quote from Isaiah chapter 41 in the Old Testament. And and this, this quote is part of one of four songs in the book of Isaiah called the servant songs and they're found in in these passages Isaiah 42 1 through 4 then 49 1 through 7 chapter 50 4 through 11 and then the longest one the one we're probably more most familiar with the song of the suffering servant Isaiah 52 13 all the way through the end of chapter 53 and and in these servant songs a picture is painted of Yahweh's promised servant one who will who is going to come and restore God's people. He's going to come and be a light to the nations. He's going to come and administer justice and eventually, as we read in Isaiah 52 and 53, give his life to pay for his people's sins. And over the centuries, there have been various opinions as people have read the book of Isaiah as to the identity of Isaiah's servant. And historically the Jew, Jewish people have, have read this and, and understood this servant to be the nation of Israel as a whole. So seeing Israel as God's servant who's going to do all these things. But then we get to Matthew. And Matthew, by the way, this is the longest Old Testament in Matthew, which is a gospel that's full of, of references and allusions to the Old Testament. And here what Matthew is doing and placing this here is identifying Jesus as the servant from Isaiah, and this is another one of those moments in the Gospel of Matthew where, where Jesus is said to fulfill or to fill up the meaning of an Old Testament text. So from Isaiah 42, we see then at least six ways in which Jesus fulfills the role of Yahweh's servant. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning just walking through this and looking, if you will, with me at Jesus. And first of all, we see that Jesus is God's chosen servant so verse 18 behold my servant whom i have chosen and first god god the father has chosen his son his own eternal son jesus to be his servant to come into the world and to fulfill everything that israel was supposed to do everything they were supposed to fulfill he is the the true and the better israel And secondly, Jesus has been chosen to be the servant who doesn't come to be served, or the king, if you will, who doesn't come to be served, but to serve. He has come to serve a beleaguered and harassed people, a people who labor under a yoke of slavery, a yoke that's been mislabeled as God's law, but which really boils down to the opinions of men. He's come to give freedom to those in bondage, not just... Jews only, but as we'll see in a moment, all of the nations, every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus is God's chosen servant to accomplish his will. Secondly, we see that Jesus, who is the Son of God, is the Father's beloved delight. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well-pleased. Jesus, um, or God says, God the Father at Jesus' baptism says that very thing. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And in a few chapters at the Transfiguration, God the Father will say that about Jesus again. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And the testimony of the rest of the New Testament is that Jesus is himself, not only the the Son of God, but the beloved Son of God, the one who the Father loves The Father loves the Son because he is the the perfect eternal image of God the Father, but he also loves the Son because of his perfect obedience. Because Jesus has a heart that reflects his Father's good heart, and he desires to accomplish the will of the Father and the purposes which the Father has divinely ordained. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. And thirdly, Jesus' ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, right in the middle there, I will put my spirit upon him. Now, you're probably familiar with the word Messiah, uh, which is a Hebrew term, and in Greek it's translated as as Christ. But it's the Hebrew title of of a king, a priestly king, who is going to come and who is expected. It's a word that simply means Anointed one. So a priest or a king in the Old Testament would be anointed, usually with olive oil that was poured on their head as a symbol of authority, as a symbol of of blessing, and as a symbol of of a bestowal of that authority. But here we have instead of God saying, instead of oil, I'm going to actually pour my spirit upon my servant. I'm going to pour the Holy Spirit and anoint this one with my blessing and with my authority, but also with an endowment of power for the ministry that I'm giving him. Sending my son into the world to be a servant, but I'm empowering him with the Holy Spirit. And this is a concept which will become very important later in this chapter when Jesus again, in round two with the Pharisees, Looks at them and says, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And as God's chosen servant, Jesus' ministry is a messianic ministry. It's an anointed ministry, which means it's approved by the Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So here we have we, we see the Trinity right here in Matthew chapter 12, the Father looking on his beloved Son and, and placing his spirit upon the Son, Father, Son and Spirit coming into the world to serve the world in the life and the work of Jesus Christ, and especially here in his ministry of mercy. so wherever the Spirit is empowering Ministry, like he was empowering the ministry of Jesus, mercy and justice will be on display. Whoever God's spirit is active and working in his people, mercy and justice will be on display. This is a huge implication, this has huge implications for us as Christians, because as Christians, if we believe the Bible, we claim that the Holy Spirit has now been placed on us. To do what? To go and do likewise. To go and do likewise. Number four, I won't spend a whole lot of time on this. Verse 19, I already mentioned it. Jesus didn't come to pick a fight with Pharisees is basically the point. He will not quarrel nor call out nor will anyone hear his voice in the wide street. And As we'll see later in the chapter, Jesus certainly came to pick a fight. Now, am I contradicting myself here? Jesus didn't come to pick a fight with the Pharisees, but he did come to pick a fight. But it was a bigger fight than with flesh and blood. Jesus came to pick a fight with a strong man. Jesus came to pick a fight with the rulers and the authorities over this present darkness. Jesus' ministry, though, on this earth, the people was humble, quiet, gentle, and merciful. And that's actually the way that he will conquer in his battle. Number five, Jesus' Mission is one of mercy and justice. Look at the last part of verse 18. It says, He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then in verse 20, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And I love these verses because, along with uh, the very end of chapter 11, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are heavy and weary and, and heavy laden and take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm hum, humble and gentle of, of heart. Along with those, I think these are the verses that show to us Jesus' heart. And I think that they show us Jesus' heart for us. The, the bruised reed and the smoldering wick are those who labor and are heavy laden. These are the ones, and perhaps this describes you, who are beleaguered, who are exhausted, who are depressed, who are broken, and who are burdened in life. And Jesus' heart is for you when you are at the end of your rope. Jesus will not break. A bruised reed. I mean, the weakest piece of grass that's already bruised and broken and heading for death. Jesus won't break it. Jesus won't extinguish even the wick that's just about to go out. And if a puff of air comes along, it will extinguish it. But, but notice also that, I mentioned this last week, that of the 39 rules that the Pharisees and the rabbis had created of things you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, breaking and extinguishing were both on that list. You can't break things, you can't extinguish things. And so to keep the rules on the Sabbath, you shouldn't break broken reeds. And you shouldn't extinguish even smoldering wicks. You can't put out a candle on the Sabbath. So someone literally couldn't keep the Sabbath and do those two things. Yet these Pharisaical rules were counterproductive because you could sit there and not put that candle out and somebody, an actual smoldering wick, someone who is suffering and in need of of food or clothing or help or assistance or mercy can be on your doorstep and you wouldn't lift a finger to help them because, well, it's the Sabbath. These pharisaical rules were actually breaking and extinguishing people because they were unmerciful and unjust. But Jesus' brand of mercy is all about breaking bonds of injustice and extinguishing heavy loads and thus truly keeping God's Sabbath. And this is really the meaning of justice that is spoken of in verses 18 and 20. Mercy and justice go hand in hand. Now, it's certainly part of the picture that justice includes judgment, but it isn't simply judgment. For Jesus to proclaim justice and to, to cause just I love this phrase, justice to triumph in victory. To cause justice to triumph in victory is for him to bring freedom and mercy and fairness, to make all things the way they're supposed to be. That is the work of God's servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to make everything the way they're supposed to be. So the the perfect picture of justice and mercy, brothers and sisters, this is found when we look at the cross. Because in the cross, we find the mercy of God sending his own son, his beloved son, to take on the judgment that you and I deserve putting on an innocent man who has done no sin, no wrong, who has only and ever pleased his Father, putting on him the sin and the judgment that we deserve. I know no better picture of God's justice and God's mercy holding hands than the cross of Jesus Christ, the place where the obedient, chosen servant willingly takes on our sin in order that we might be justified. At the cross, justice and mercy meet and they embrace. And to experience both of those, we have to look to the cross. But we're also called to live out both mercy and justice as we follow Jesus on the way to the cross. And finally, the sixth thing that we find in Isaiah's little song here is that Jesus is the hope of the nations. Verse 21, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Israel, as we see in Isaiah 51, Israel was to be a light and a blessing to the nations, but instead, like Mike Tyson, they became arrogant in their dominance. But Jesus boldly stood against this arrogance, and against it, he proclaimed mercy So rather than being a hope only for Israel, though, Jesus extends the mercy of God to all people, to all nations. And So we read in, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus saying, The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is still the hope of the nations. And it's to the nations that his gospel must be proclaimed. So yes, we praise God because we find hope in Jesus. Because, brothers and sisters, we are the nations. Unless you're of Jewish heritage, we're all Gentiles for the most part. We are the nations who've heard and hoped in Jesus if you put your trust in him. So we rejoice in that, but we also rejoice that we are able to embody and proclaim to the nations the hope that we have found in Jesus. And so God has given us two ways, I think, to respond this morning. And the first is simply to look at Jesus, God's chosen, beloved servant. So maybe today you feel like you're harassed and down trodden you can find today mercy rather than judgment in Jesus grace rather than condemnation freedom rather than oppression and perhaps today for the first time maybe you've heard about Jesus your entire life and yet you've yet to put your trust in him perhaps you've never considered the claims of Christ as the king and God's servant and today would be the day for you to come to Jesus, to look at him and to find in him both justice and mercy. Would you put your faith in him today? And for the rest of us, who are God's people through faith in Jesus Christ, I'll say this, I've said it before, follow the mercy As Christ's representatives, believers have been given, we've been given the Holy Spirit. We have not been given the Holy Spirit so that we can sit and enjoy all the blessings and keep them to ourselves. We've been given the Spirit not for our own sakes, but to empower us to follow Jesus in bringing mercy, justice, and hope to all peoples. So the question for us is, do we in our lives display the embodiment of, In our life and the proclamation and our teaching of the life-giving fullness of this gospel, this good news that we find in Jesus. So as we come to the table this morning, we take communion every week. And we come and we remember in this little piece of bread and this little fruit of the vine, this little cup of juice, we remember the body and the blood of Jesus poured out for our sins and for our sake by the mercy of God. God is moving always moving towards us in mercy. So come this morning and experience that mercy, and maybe it's a re-experience of that mercy for you who are weary and heavy laden. Perhaps it's mercy for the first time. And then as you go from here, I'd ask that you come, and as you as you take with your family or by yourself, that you would ask God to anoint you and fill you with his spirit as you go from here that you might embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel wherever you're at this week. Come, receive mercy, and then go empowered by the spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you, God's great servant, anointed by the spirit, completely obedient to your father, delighted in and loved by him, the one who shows mercy, the one who will not break a bruised reed or extinguish a smoldering wick, but who will bring justice until it is victorious. Jesus, we know that you are the one who is victorious. We praise you for the victory that you have won over death, over sin, over Satan, through your death, through your burial, through your resurrection. And Jesus, we look to you this morning. We pray for those in the room who have never considered your claims or who have never turned to you in repentance and faith. Lord, today I pray that this would be the day that you would move and bring new life and faith. For those of us, God, who have, who have followed you, Jesus, for a long time, maybe we're beleaguered, maybe we're discouraged, maybe we're run down, would you fill us with your hope with renewed faith, with the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit that we might go from this place anointed anew and afresh to be your hands and feet in a hurting world. We pray all these things for the sake of Jesus and in his name, amen.